I don't have any buttons in my wardrobe. Oh, so you might have dropped these then. They're all yeah. zippers. Yeah, no, or, no, it's a good point. You may you may have dropped them. That might be why you don't have any buttons. Is that why I'm naked right now? Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Combinations and Permutations, episode 40, from acmescience.com. On this week's episode, we get locked into a Chinese room, we have some problems learning with machines, and we learn the German word for leather shorts. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Combinations and Permutations, the mathematical podcast that comes to you from uh, my apartment. Uh, Also the apartment of one of the guests, that would be Mr. Nathan Rowe, the man without a plan. The man, I don't know. I, I just, I don't like Nathan enough to actually come up with anything. I so really, go ahead. I really don't have a plan. I'm, I'm trying to figure that out in the, the coming months. You know, what, oh. what happens next? Oh, uh, that's a question we're not going to answer on here. So next up, I have uh, the wonderful, the inimitable, the undergraduate, Mr. Christopher Bates. I have seen the light. What light? Well, you know, the one up there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm glad you turned the second one out, Nathan. Because no, you know, the I first can't. one was really the, bright. The second one, the, there's only turn. one light. There's only one. The other, light. the other lights burnt out. Why are we talking about the light fixtures in why, this room that no one else? can Why see? is there one switch for two lights? There, well, this other light burnt out. There's two switches for two lights. One of the lights. So why work. are there not so, two lamps? So there, there is in this room right now with us. A light fixture that has a burnt out light bulb for all of you who are so interested in what we're talking about. And so the next guest is a, is a brand new guest, a friend of mine from uh, Max FunCon last year, which is coming up again in like two weeks. Really excited. Oh, is it that soon? Yeah, it's two weeks from now. And that would be uh, Mr. Rob Schultz uh, from what, notart.org and the podcast Better Radio. That is correct. Uh, as well as the professional podcast guest service, I'm happy to... Uh, be bringing to computations and permutations. Com- combinations. Oh dear. Oh dear. Yeah. That. I'm sorry. I'll take that. I'll take that off of your bill. Okay. Thank you. I. It's, so it's. I'm only owing you what nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars now. We'll talk about I, it I, after. Imaginary okay. dollars. Well, I can't, I, I can't do the math in my head. Okay. Well, I neither mean, can we. <laughs> that is true. We are mathematicians, therefore incapable of doing mental arithmetic. And so uh, on this show. Uh, as per usual, it's been like a month since we recorded one, so I just feel the need to uh, in- re-inform everybody, uh, you know, the same people who have been listening to this for months now, uh, about what we do, and that's we pick some sort of topic that might be kind of, sort of, maybe mathematical. Uh, if I could toss some more qualifiers in there, I would. And then we uh, talk about it. Uh, and so uh, I guess we're going to do that. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going back into thought experiment world. It's been a while since we've, since we've been there. We've had some fun there before with... Uh, you know, the, the halting problem, and of course, everyone's favorite, the infinite monkey theorem. That's a good theorem. Oh, it's, it's really fantastic. I mean, that, that's one that, I mean, non-mathematicians actually know about. Sure, sure, I've heard of it. I'm still trying to think about 
like when you're talking about quantifiers of the kind of sort of maybe qualifiers qualifiers on my bad quantifiers um, would be yeah, you know yeah, existential right, right, and right, universal right. little devil but, horns in the backwards but e. i was just thinking that if those qualifiers were qualifying the qualifiers then the nature of those qualifiers where they were kind of sort of maybe were actually detracting from from how how qualified well that's true but i, I was. was not so instead of adding more qualifiers you were actually with each qualifier well you how, said about, in addition, how about how about instead how about instead of that way instead of this sort of transitive relationship you're trying to do here it's more of an exponential relationship so kind of to the sort of to the maybe and all expanding on one another okay you know, okay. given an infinitely large number of uh, theorems, you're bound to hit one that a non-mathematician has heard of. Okay, so uh, why am I getting upstaged That's... in mathematics by the non-mathematician? <laughs> I think it's that about that is time. Actually, a very false statement. Uh, <laughs> just, just like if you just set somebody to writing out theorems, yeah. surely eventually mm. someone will write something that a non-mathematician has heard of. Not, not. I mean that, that. Well, that's assuming that there does exist one non-mathematician who has heard of at least one theorem. I'm willing to assume that. I okay. have I have a counterexample that uh, that supports Rob's argument. Uh, a student that I know, and I won't mention who he or she is, but a student that I've had. It was you, wasn't it? Fuck. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a student that I know of uh, learned the form of the theorems. You know the language did all the examples and knew the culture of how math is asked, you know, when you get a question on an exam or quiz and the students just knew how to present the right answer and got hundred percent credit. And then I asked him, well, what do you know about calculus? And the, the response was not a goddamn thing. So it is possible for a machine that's smart enough to learn the language to answer all the questions correctly without okay, knowing. The okay. Actual- Honestly, this is incredibly creepy. Uh, because that directly goes into what we're going to be talking about today. Amateur, okay. uh, hardcore mathematics fans? Uh, no, Proving but... machines? Uh, not, not quite. Uh, what we're going to talk about Bondage. is... No, because remember, we're in thought experiment world. So, so we need a thought experiment. And specifically, we're going to take one uh, from Searle. Uh, if I can remember. John Searle. Uh, famous philosopher. Anyone else ever heard of Searle? Okay, uh, but he had, he, had a, he had a wonderful thought experiment uh, called the Chinese room. Is it, is it a room for Chinese things, or is it a room that is Chinese? The thought experiment is called the Chinese is it a room, room thought experiment. in China? Are the checkers on the floor? Yeah, do, uh, Chinese checkers? Okay, are you, are you holding your eyes? Because that's... I, 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 was, I was practicing for Lequeb. Uh, and so the Chinese, the Chinese room thought experiment, and this um, it's a thought experiment that was posed by uh, uh, posed by John Searle. And uh, as soon as I find exactly where it is, okay. So from from Wikipedia, I mean, I have to read out the experiment at the very least. Uh, suppose that artificial intelligence research has succeeded in constructing a computer that behaves as if it understands Chinese. Okay. So it takes Chinese characters as input. And then through its programming and everything else, it then uh, produces Chinese characters, which it presents as output. And say uh, a Chinese person cannot, uh, it cannot tell the difference between it and another human being. In other words, it passes the Turing test. Right. It convinces a human Chinese speaker that the program is 
a human right. Chinese the, speaker. The, the written Turing, Turing test. Yeah, the written Turing test. Oh, um, now, what Searle uh, then asks is, uh, how is that any different than a person who you put in a room with a bunch of books on Chinese and you start giving him input and then asking him to present output? Eventually, that human being will understand uh, at least the structure and grammar of the Chinese language well enough to be able to uh, also pass, essentially, a Turing test. Uh, and so his question is, uh, how is, how are those two things at all different? Because neither of them actually have to understand the language. Okay, first of all, does it have to be Chinese? No, it's just, this is the Chinese room. Okay. So it's just, Understood. you know, Chinese is standing in for any other written language. Assuming that the, so the human is not a native Chinese Yeah, speaker. not a native Chinese speaker. So, so if I asked this room, what is one plus one in Chinese characters, would it output, shit if I know, or, would it, or, <laughs> or do we expect it to know how to do those sorts of things too? Well, it, you would expect that if the person knows that one plus one equals two, uh, in whatever their native language is, they're going to be able to parse the Chinese language, translate it in, give the answer, translate it back. They'll give you a credible attempt at responding in Chinese. Yeah. Uh, right, right. So you're wait, wait. Maybe you can I ask maybe the I beyond something. its understanding. So okay, that that's what I'm I'm trying to. And, and, and what he and what he'll be doing, what the human being will be doing. This and this is the important thing is that he will be doing nothing other than running manually the program that the machine did. So the artificial intelligence is is running some sort of program. And and you know, because that's what artificial intelligence are. They're some bunch of programs put together. This is specifically the Chinese program. So it's essentially saying that a human being can run this program and not end up understanding Chinese. Why do we assume that a computer that can run this program understands Chinese? So why would uh passing the Turing test in such a way be a good measure of artificial intelligence. Okay, I, I was clear, and you've lost me with that last part. Are you, the person is not going to, uh, the human, will not take the effort, make the effort to learn Chinese, the yeah. language of Chinese. No, they're just going to do the same to, thing that the computer did. To translate it, answer, come up with an answer, translate it back, and oh, send you that. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, that, like, that's, so that's what have... a human being would end up <laughs> doing, but also he could do it just by running through the algorithm that the computer uses as well. Okay. You know, because the computer, okay. I mean, it just takes these things, parses them in some way, so, yeah, all right. finds, you know, certain things, and then it gives you the output. And, and that's how, I mean, computer programs just run like that. So essentially it's saying that a human being can just run this computer program manually. In the end, he won't understand Chinese, but he would, through running the program, be able to pass a Turing test. I bet if he does it long enough, he'll acquire an understanding of Chinese. Not not if I, he only does it with the program. So he doesn't actually, uh, it, it, depending on how the program's written, it, it won't necessarily teach. Well, the, but the person's adaptive, right? So uh, in a way that the machine isn't. Well, that's, that's kind of the, the heart of Searle's argument, is that uh, you wouldn't, uh, in the end, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between these two people. But in a real world situation, not a thought experiment situation, the human being would end up understanding. Whereas he posits that the machine, since it's just running a program, would never end up understanding. Well, a question. Can the machine uh, store, I don't know, can it do research and store the results of its own you know, uh, efforts at discovery 
if it's being asked these questions, do these things exist? Is this possible? Is the computer going to just go off on its own and is well, it going to ask well, questions? Well, think, think about when you, you program a computer to do addition. You know, say, I mean, this is, uh, addition is a very simple operation to program a computer to do from the ground up. Um, would you say that the computer understands addition or just that it can do it? No, I would say uh, it can do it. It can yeah. just do it. Yeah. Right. And so that's, that's the argument here. Just because something can pass a Turing test, uh, it can pass it without understanding, though. But, but the, idea, the idea of the Turing test is that, is that language and conversation is, is something not... I mean, the nature of your questions can just be... I, I mean, it needs to pass the Turing test on more than just a... I mean, it, in order to pass a Turing test, you're going to have to, you will have to remember the previous questions asked and, and build off that. And if I ask the same question three times, you don't just respond the same way. Eventually you say, what the hell are you doing um, asking me yeah, the same and, question? Yeah, and that, that's all true. I don't actually agree with Searle's argument here. Okay. But it's an argument that I think that we should, you know, try to take. And I'll take the devil's advocate position if I have to. If the, if the Turing test is uh, key to this, I'd like to ask you a question about that. Because I'm familiar with the idea. But is, is there a, a specific technical requirement to passing? Or is it just fooling somebody in the like, subjectively, you know, like, uh, you know, I don't want to name names, but there are, there are probably some people who are more likely to be fooled by, uh, you know, a reasonably well-programmed robot than another. Uh, do you remember the exact, like if it's to fool Alan Turing, then maybe that's like a more difficult challenge. Than... I, I don't, I don't know. Actually, I think for something like that, uh, mathematicians and computer scientists would be the worst possible people to put in the room. Because they think very analytically. They think very much in, in the same way of the things that they deal with in an everyday basis. I think putting someone in who's a, you know, a natural language expert or an English person might actually end up giving you better results because they're more like likely a, to be gregarious and well-spoken. A Briton, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, uh, in a way. No, I, uh, do you remember the requirements for a Turing test? Well, I, I think that the written Turing test is just that um, it, the the statement is just that it's indistinct that when you type and talk to this person, it's indistinguishable from if you were typing and having a conversation with someone through writing. Right. Because that that's what like Eliza is supposed to be, right? In I don't theory. know what that is. Is it a chatterbox? Yeah, like a program. Oh, yeah, that, right. That talks right. To you, sort so of so these these chatterboxes are trying to do that, but it's very easy to catch i mean it, they're very simple literally asking the same question like 10 times in a row well uh, they've they've trained it they train it to respond differently a couple well, times or yeah whatever. well not not 10 times in, but 10 times in quick succession peppered with other questions inside of it yeah. is also tends to be yeah. a very effective and, way and you could also do things like like uh you could tell it something that it needs to understand now and log away like you can say um I am going to tell you the values of some constants and then tell you a story and then ask for those values back, but after I've done a simple addition or something with. And then, and then go ahead and say that A equals 3 and B equals 7, and then tell him this story or something like that. And this time, spell A and B differently or something like that. And, and, then, and then the person would have, would have thought to write it down or something so that they can... And the computer is not going to have understood the sentence. You know, so it's like... There are a lot of ways you can trick these com these programs. They're not they're not smart. They're just they recognize patterns. Yeah, is, they're, the, is the answer going to be twenty one? 
I don't know. No, the answer is going to be 42. Okay. The answer is always 42. So you get 50% now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and this, and this brings us into um, something that, that Searle uh, identified. I mean, because essentially the Chinese room is just Searle's argument for saying that the Turing test is not a good enough measure of whether a machine is thinking. Uh, it's, it's a good measure for uh, some sort of artificial intelligence uh, that could pass for human in conversation. But they might. It, his argument is that in order to be an actual thinking machine, you have to be an understanding machine as well. So then uh, what he did is he posits something called strong artificial intelligence. This is from uh, uh, his paper, Minds, Brains, and Programs. It was published in 1980. That's a good paper. Oh, you've read it? No. Oh, okay. It is a good sure? paper, though. Yeah. I just, it sounds terrific. Yeah. Uh, the, appro- like the appropriately programmed computer with the right inputs and outputs would thereby have a mind in exactly the same sense as human beings have minds. And now this is where I really feel that Searle's argument falls flat. His argument is the only way to have a thinking machine is to have a machine that thinks in the exact same way as humans. Yeah, that's bullshit. Probably. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that presupposes that all the humans are thinking the same way. I've had students, and it's I've also given... presupposing that all intelligence, intelligent life in the universe, is human or has a uh, what a One-to-one homology correspondence in yeah. I, an ice, an isomorphism. It literally an isomorphism between so our minds and any other thinking beings in the universe, yeah. or that human life is intelligent. I've had, I've had, <laughs> that, that too. I, no, come I, on. I'm, I'm we not... invented motherfucking podcasts, man. That is intelligent. No, God, it's not, is it? I've had oh, students. No. Oh, no. Well, shit. Oh, no. I've had students, and I'll explain. I'll give them a list of axioms. And, you know, Why this are is. Why you giving. First of all, you don't have students. Okay. I don't actually have students. I have people that pay me. You, to teach you have, them. yes. So, okay. so I guess so I'm a prostitute, actually. A I'm a math uh, no, prostitute. He is a tutor. <laughs> so you show them ships like the one in Wally. Yes. But, yes, actually, okay. that's an excellent example. I think that I, I think that it's teacher is to student as tutor is to student. I think you use the same words in both situations. Fuck you, I'm trying to take him down. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. All right, the, what I've observed is this. I'll show someone a situation, and they know the answer, and the answer they know is correct. And I will vary slightly uh, the question, and they will not know the answer. And so I will try to guide them to their error. For instance, you would say? I would say negative 3 divided by 3 equals negative 1. And I will ask them that question, what is negative 3 divided by 3? And they'll say, oh, negative 1. They'll be correct. And I'll say, okay, what is um, 10 divided by negative 10? And they'll say, negative 1. And they love that. So then I'll say, well, what is pi divided by negative pi? And they won't know because I haven't told them what pi is. I haven't said, oh, they know it's not a natural number. They know it's not an integer. So I think, oh, it has some weird rule. What is negative the square root of 2 divided by the square root of 2? Of course, we know it's negative 1, but they don't know that. So if we, if we take that and we transpose that, like if that's the person example, and we take that to the machine example, and we're talking to the machine, mm-hmm. and we, we, t- we type into the machine, because if we're doing the written Turing test, right, we're, we're typing into the machine uh, that, you know, the turtle is on its back in the desert, and you aren't helping it, and the machine doesn't know what to say, and it doesn't say back, you can lead it down the path of the right answer by asking, yeah. why aren't you helping it? Why yeah. aren't you helping it? 
why aren't you helping it? You know, I mean, there's there's another thing. I, I know exactly what Chris is talking about. It's it's that you tell someone that negative three divided by three is negative one, and then you ask them to find three divided by negative three, and they can't do it. It's because, uh, at least as an instructor, I quite often treat my students as if they were just digital computers. So is that does that is that evidence that the student in question is a replicant? You know what I I would. Actually, conjecture they're more of a skin job than a replicant. Like, can, can the person, like, if, if the person, uh, the student, the hu- verifiably human student, fails the Turing test, like, doesn't seem to be uh, able to engage in a relevant conversation, does that, uh, you know, does that prove the inverse of Cyril's argument? Uh, I don't think, I, I don't honestly believe that, that this argument happens to be a... Uh, uh, it's not, I'm, we're not looking contrapositive here. We're looking, uh, what's, uh, A implies B, uh, means negative A implies negative B, that's which contrapositive. No, no, that's negative B implies negative A. Oh, ne- negative. Negation. Negation. Yeah. Negation. I don't believe that this is a negatable argument. Uh, but I do think that we should start cutting our students open to see whether or not they have machines inside of them. That's a good idea. <laughs> that is a good idea. I mean, just in case. Just in case your argument is correct. But just I, in case I, that I, if something doesn't pass the Turing test, that automatically means that it is a machine. Well, it's not... Yeah, the Turing test isn't an if and only if. You are intelligent if and only if you can have a good conversation with a person. Yeah, the but idea but was, what if it is true? What if it is? That then, means we have three quarters of our students minimum that we need to chop up. Check to see. It's the only way we can tell. And not to mention colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> no Probably comment. a higher proportion of colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I uh, don't want to speak out, out of school as uh, the only one of you not in school, but... Um, you know, when you're talking about professional mathematicians, do you even want to know? I mean, is it worth it? Because uh, wouldn't you rather have the, the strength of computation and, and less... Uh, yeah, I mean, why, why we ostracize? We why? can't risk turning, turning the machines against us. They do our math for us. That, that, is, that is true. But also, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with Rob's argument for a different reason. Okay. Uh, the more machines we have that are our colleagues, uh, the less creativity they have. And it's the creative minds that come up with the really awesome proofs. So uh, I, I actually hope that everyone is a machine. That way I'm the only creative one left and all the good proofs will come from me. You know, I, I, I tend to agree with you. And this is a rare occasion um, that I won't be muted. Okay, I don't, I don't care. I, I just don't care what Chris was going to say there. Uh, so, so are, oh, we were talking about that. So let's, uh, we've talked about the Turing test. We've talked about Chinese. How about we actually just define what artificial intelligence actually is. We've been kind of tossing the term around is, is, a lot. Does the definition of artificial intelligence um, rely on the definition of intelligence, or are we trying to implicitly define intelligence within our definition of artificial intelligence? Because this is going to be quite a challenge. Yes. Mute <laughs> no, I just unmuted you. How about that? Uh, I think we'll take, we'll take our definition here, given a certain understanding of intelligence. The, how about, that's, that's better. Yeah, how about we take the, the, basic, the basic understanding of intelligence that we see in everyday culture? 
and I'm not going to try to define it because yeah. I do not want to send myself down that down that rabbit yeah. hole. Just just don't. I mean, uh, you see, I, I I'm I'm familiar with with a robot called Magic Voice. Uh, it's based on sort of the Eliza. Uh, you know that that engine of keeping a conversation going. Yeah, the the keyword. Um, uh, and it, but what it does is it has triggers. Uh, it has things that if it notices somebody say say it, it has it will that will elicit a certain response. Uh, but I and I find people have triggers. You know, if I mention uh, something you especially like, something you especially dislike, you're probably going to tell me the same thing you would tell any other person that brings up that topic. Chris, you know one of my triggers. Go. Um, like traps. Oh God! You, of I mean, all the triggers that you could possibly bring up, you bring up the one that makes me want to kick you out yeah, of the room. Yeah, but there's a, there's a trap behind your chair, man. It's I mean, not a, a trap. No, it's a bear trap right there. It's sprung open. Okay, it's no, got the see, little that, piece that's of not meat a on it. Looks sharp. It's extremely sharp. And there's like, is that a filet mignon on the trigger of the trap? It looks delicious. Oh you know, man, that is a tasty looking filet mignon. You know, if mm. you really want to trick me, you should use you should have used Kobe. Or wagyu or foie gras. Well, it's it's Kobe filet from the Kobe region of Japan, not like wagyu wannabe Kobe. Could temptation be a means of distinguishing between a person who's real and a person who's not? Why can't we just program it? Yeah, I think we could very easily. There have been a lot of robots that I've wanted to uh, n- nothing. <laughs> how, how strong? How strong? <laughs> So the other thing that makes uh, Magic Voice uh, especially uh, interesting as a robot is is that uh, Magic Voice remembers unusual things that people say uh, and can pull those back in a context-sensitive manner uh, in later conversation. Uh, So she says things that... uh, Ooh, she? Yeah. Mm, She Um, good-looking? Nice. No, it's an animate... Inanimate? Computer program inanimate? Yeah. So you're saying that I could just attach whatever photo I want to Eliza (laughs) or Magic Box and just kind of uh, picture it the way I... I'm not going to say that, but I won't (laughs) stop you. Uh, Yeah, so so, so, uh, the thing is that by remembering like unusual turns of phrase, the robot will appear to say things uh, that you would, uh, you know, be even less likely to suspect... From the robot. Okay. So let's, let's get our definition of artificial intelligence. Uh, this is apparently a definition from a textbook. Um, That's and, a good textbook. Yeah. The study and design of intelligent agents. So, I mean, we're getting the artificial intelligence as a science definition here. Uh, but intelligent agent is really what we're, what we're worried about. Intelligent agent is a system that perceives its environment and takes actions that maximize its chance of success so boy, that was the definition of intelligence yeah in, in intelligent agent so which has an implicit intelligence yes we did end up defining intelligence that you can so it's a pragmatic uh the, a pragmatic definition of yeah intelligence. the intelligent agent has one i don't actually agree that much with that definition of intelligence this definition of artificial intelligence brought to you by mcgraw hill <laughs> Uh, the guy who actually coined the term, uh, John McCarthy, uh, he actually defined it as the science and engineering of making intelligent machines. And that's, that's the one that I would prefer us to use here. That sounds more like uh, artificial intelligence to metrics. <laughs> artificial in- intelligence Okay, yeah, the science of artificial intelligence. Yeah. 
and and so really we're just worrying about the make the intelligent machines themselves mm-hmm. so artificial intelligence is intelligent machines okay so these are very cyclical definitions we're coming up with here um, but i mean ai ai has been around for a while i mean it's it was defined in 56 i believe that oh my mistake I, I thought you meant the movie that came out in 2001 how no uh, oh, ai the movie I, 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 yeah, I was I was trying to go with it. You're thinking but... of the Hell 9000. Oh, that's right. 9000 bottles of beer on the wall? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's a lot of beer on the wall. It's a big room. It's, it's a like, big wall. Yeah, that's a really big wall. That's a lot of I'm beer to drink sure in artificial that, gravity. How many like how many if you had 6 feet I mean a, a wall that was 6 feet wide, the amount of bottles you could fit along it, you know, the the horizontal way it's a comparatively low area room. Uh, the dimensions are not useful for human living. I, I would guess that uh, you get about six to seven per feet. Six to seven bottles of beer per feet. Per foot, yeah, per, per foot. Feet. We per both foot. said it. So it'd be, you know, six times. You'd have, you'd have 36 and then 36 to get to 9,000. What's the square root of 9,000? Chris? 300. Like 300 something? It's 300. It's literally 300. Nine is a square number. Oh. <laughs> Wait, but 300 times 300 is 90,000. Oh, crap. But remember, he's also in zero oh, no. G. That's... We're a little less than 100. He's, he's yeah, it, it, would be, it would be 30 by 300. I mean, it's not the square root, but... Yeah, 30... Well, whatever. It's a little less than 100. The room, however, is only uh, four foot wide. Again, I just want to emphasize the area of the room is not. It's ninety four, ninety four point eight, okay. so ninety five. And so ar- artificial gravity, artificial gravity is being provided by rotation. So you know you can compute whatever the radius is that is necessary to provide one g of artificial gravity. How much room do you have on the wall? Assuming you're living in a. What uh, the cylindrical hell are you talking about? Why, why, why physics? <laughs> See, this is the fucking trigger. Physics fucking sucks. And I've gone off on this enough times at this point that you should know not to bring it up. This artificial gravity brought to you by Rotation Hill. Well, anyway, uh, 9,000 bottles of beer on a wall. That's, I, I, I think you would actually need, you would need a very big wall. We're talking, we're talking like um, probably 150, 120 by 120 feet or something like that because the bottle is tall. Well, know, what if we assume that it can only be eight feet tall? Oh, yeah. Then you, yeah, if it's an eight foot tall wall, you'd have to go a long, long time. And are, are, these, are these bottles... Uh... You know, are you guys figuring like a stacking density for the bottle? Because if you, if half of them were upside down, then you could pack them in more tightly on the wall. No, no, because they stack on top of one another. The the right. bottom part of a, a oh beer bottles. Yes. Oh, we're talking bottle. I was thinking cans. Nine thousand uh, bottles of beer on the wall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bottles yeah, yeah, would so, be would be a more yeah it would change. But I think that yeah altering it, every other one yeah. upside down is probably close to optimal. I mean. Well, I think it would actually be optimal for the real world situation. Yeah. In 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 three dimensions. Right. Or right. at least three. Well, yeah, it's just I if we go if we actually went up to say I believe it's fifty three dimensions, uh it might be sixty three. I you can't quote me on this, but at that I point won't. packing density, uh the optimal packing density is just throwing it in. It's it's literally <laughs> random. It's it's the randomized packing is the optimal packing. And that doesn't for, that doesn't change over time. 
because time is included? No, no. I mean, it's it's not a time thing. This is you. You're packing a fifty-three dimensional uh, hollow object. That is fascinating. Yeah, and you just the easiest way is just tossing them in. <laughs> well, I mean, given that you're a fifty-three dimensional being tossing in fifty-three dimensional <laughs> objects into the fifty-three dimensional hollow poly uh, polytope. It's polytope. That's the that's the right. Correct term. Yeah, we we had that discussion once. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so artificial intelligence. Now, artificial intelligence, uh, and this is the reason we're able to talk about this on here. Artificial intelligence is tied in with something called machine learning. Now, machine learning is actually part of mathematics. I mean, more directly, it's part of theoretical computer science, which is essentially mathematics. It's also a lot of uh, data mining, algorithms, uh, and as well as a lot of statistics and probability theory involved in machine learning. And machine learning is just, you know, it's the development of of algorithms and programs that uh, learn from experience. So heuristics and things like that would be machine learning. And, and I mean, this, this has to be the way that we're eventually going to get uh, what Searle would classify as... No, actually, he would not classify it as a strong AI because it won't necessarily think just like humans. But I think that our best way of getting an actual thinking machine has to be through something like machine learning uh, tactics eventually making a machine learn enough to write its own machine learning program. So Cyril's like putting John Henry in the box to see whether or not like a human is going to do more better is going to do more learning or better learning than the machine learning. Uh, well what what he says is that the only way John Henry can actually think and be a thinking machine is if he thinks exactly like a human does. He might that be able to think faster. Son of a Bitch. Yeah, he might be able to think faster, you know, because he has a faster processor uh, up top than we do. You know, his, his chip could be faster than the human brain, but it would have to work identically to it. John Henry's the machine? Yeah, John Henry's the machine. John oh, Henry's boy. Terminator. I need to rethink some things. <laughs> My, I assumed you were making a Sarah Connor Chronicles reference there, but... Uh, ooh, not at all. No, no, John, John Henry... Uh, uh... John Henry split, chopped down trees and split logs much faster than the, the machines of the day. Oh, that's right. I was actually thinking of uh, after they caught uh, uh, the original Terminator that got sent back in Sarah Connor Chronicles. Paul Bunyan. Cromarty. Cromarty. When, uh, when the evil company uh, headed by the uh, former lead singer of Garbage. Babe the Blue Ox Co. Yep, Exactly. Uh, they they captured or they found Cromarty's uh, former lead singer of Garbage. Isn't or is it? I think that Garbage is still together. Is Garbage still together? Oh, I hope so. What was the lead singer's name? I don't know. Oh. She's like four. She looks only twenty five. She's, she's am- like forty something. She's amazing. Yeah, oh. Shirley Manson. Oh. She she stays inside a lot. Yeah. Well, oh. if she ever went outside, she would uh, lose the translucence of her skin, and that would be a shame. Yeah. Uh, but okay, so are they from Seattle? I don't honestly know. London, someplace famous for rain, or someplace ra- someplace where it rains rarely. That's probably why she's so excited. Uh, it was actually formed in Madison. Huh. Uh, that- she she is Scottish. Madison has an average rainfall. Is that why you're wider than your shirt? <laughs> Scotland is known for uh, is known yeah for rain. yeah. So so she's from somewhere that's known for known for rain. That explains it then. Yeah. Okay, and so, yeah, so they named, when they took Cromarty and rebuilt him, uh, they named him John Henry. 
Oh. And he was locked in the basement. So there's literal significance that. to that, but literary significance and oh, research oh, that kind of literal. Okay, literal literary significance. Literary. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, yeah, that's I mean, cool. They, John they Henry. It, that's an old song, isn't it? Oh, I'm sure there are songs. Yeah. No, but yeah, I know folk, the story. Folklore. It's the sort of thing that comes up uh, frequently in uh, John Henry, the steel driving man. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that comes up when you need to when you need an allegory of a man versus machine. So of course, right. all okay. Terminator. Right. It comes up uh, uh, Steel, one of the uh, the four Superman that replaced uh, Kal El while he was dead, as well as uh, the main character in the movie starring Shaquille O'Neal uh, was named John Henry Irons. So just saying, Shazam. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're, think, you're, you're thinking of Shaq Fu. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, uh, I actually, I actually just, I just uh, found the song. That, yeah, it was uh, Woody Guthrie had a version of the John Henry song. Oh, I bet it's terrific. Oh yeah, I really bet it is. Woody Guthrie is amazing, though. Woody mm, Guthrie, that's is good really... listening. <laughs> okay, uh, so I mean, yeah, I mean, what about beat, You can dance to it. So when you when we think about machine learning, uh, like Nathan, what yes. do you think? What do you think the best method uh, to do a machine learning program would be? Like, I mean, from from like the math and algorithms that you know, um, um, it just collects as much data as possible and does statistical analysis on all of its information. Try to minimize or maximize. Um, Based on based on person responses, usually we, we use machine learning in like recommend in recommender algorithms and things like that with Netflix, etc. Yeah, the, ne- um, the Netflix the Netflix prize right. was one of the biggest so, examples of machine yeah, learning. Yeah, just it takes takes massive amounts of data, puts them into these huge matrices, and calculates p values on different al- different items. And then the more information it has, the more accurate its its uh, different variables can. Yeah, predict your actions, and so it's it's learning how to recommend you movies. That seems like an argument against machine learning. Why? I mean, uh, if the Netflix Prize is the the highest uh, public visi- publicly visible example of it, right? I feel like it, it th- Netflix thinks I would like most movies just fine. About <laughs> <laughs> like a three. Well, it's yeah, not, it's it's real. well, it's just. I mean, we don't. We haven't been doing machine learning for that long, and yeah, we're not very good at it. Apparently, it it actually did increase. What what was the minimum amount? Twenty percent. It was it was a very big difference. I mean, they they managed to massively improve this thing. Yeah, like the algorithm now is a lot better than it was three years ago. No, I was not a member three years ago. Yeah, maybe back then I would have thought I would have loved movies that I would have liked, today liked just fine. Yeah, I stand corrected. Well, you know, I think the problem with determining whether uh, this algorithm is effective or not is, um, well, it's limited by the pure subjectivity subjectivity of the problem. You go to Google, you type in a search, you hit enter, and Google gives you a list, an ordered list of what it thinks are the most relevant websites, right? What you know, its the- algorithm through mm-hmm. using PageRank and a few other proprietary things uh, it comes up with as Sam the best ranked like list. The way you use the word I think. I know. Okay. Well, when I think when I say think, I mean in the the you know you plug it in and you pay it money and it tells you the answer. You know, like all those calculators that so you alpha buy. right. <laughs> oh, I'm not I'm not saying anything about alpha. <laughs> I love alpha personally. <laughs> I'm waiting for the day that it controls you know my will and last testament. But anyway, <laughs> um, I guess what I'm getting at is this. Um, who cares what answer it comes out with? 
The question is, does it jive with what most people agree is what they were actually looking for? But my question is, do people even know what the hell they're looking for? Or are they just going to, are 20% of people who go to Google going to be satisfied with 70% of what their search results return? I, I think your percentages there are all uh, way too small. I think about 90% of people who go to Google will be perfectly satisfied with whatever is on the first page of like 90% of their searches. I don't go beyond the first page. I quite yeah. often do. I'm super lazy. How many people are super lazy? Are well, at least twenty yeah, percent of the people who listen to this podcast. But, but, you, but with something like the Netflix Prize, there is actually a metric you can use. Uh, because I mean, yes, right. there are going to be people who will just add to their queue whatever Netflix tells them they they're going to like. That's that. But that I imagine is actually a smaller amount of people because unlike say just basic search results, this is something you are eventually going to have to invest some time in. Because you know you're going to get the movie. So if you have a better recommendation algorithm, you can actually measure that it's better because people are more likely to add the recommended movies to their queue. Does that show up in profits, though? Like if they use the better algorithm, does that increase their profits or does it decrease it or, or, is, well, because, or is it indistinguishable? Because people, people will be happier with the service. Right, therefore, right. they're more likely to recommend the service to other people. Right. Are they actually happier? Yeah. My, I, have, I have plenty of friends who, who have gone – like, you know, they, they – got into Netflix because there were like 10 movies on their list that they wanted to see. And after getting those 10 movies and rating them, they just went like, they just let Netflix recommend them the next movies. And most of the time they are pleasantly like, you know, they have a good experience with it. Um, and sometimes they don't. And then Netflix gets a little smarter about it. For what it's so, worth. I uh, just Went and uh, checked out on Alpha Chris's uh, Last Will and Testament, and if you're interested, it can t- show you in hectares per descendant. I have descendants. You, oh you will. shit! <laughs> and, wow, and land is still measured in hectares. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it is actually. It provides uh, a range of uh, fascinating uh, conversions. Uh, you could also find out how many Yankee stadiums. Uh, per third cousin, it's 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 an incredible website. Yeah, I was I was wondering, uh, do you do you think Alpha has uh, has finally finally gotten to the place where they can actually uh, tell me what my final net worth will be in raccoon skins? Is is because I know last time I checked it was just leopard, lion, and bear skins, and I really I don't I don't care about those. Uh, those are not useful for me. So I really need to know how many raccoon skins I will eventually be worth. According to the release notes, that's going to be a beta feature. Oh crap! Yeah, yeah. If the, if the, any time they're not confident about their their ability, slap beta on it, and then they can get away with whatever. So you know, it's just total bullshit. Either that, or they're encouraging your investment. Okay, so so I, I wanted to bring up something that that I for a long time have thought might actually help machine learning, and this is. It, it's an idea I'm tossing this out there. Anyone who actually has programming experience who thinks that this might be a smart idea, please go ahead. What if they think it's a stupid, dumb... Please email me at samuel at acmescience.com and let me know. Or go onto our forum at acmescience.com slash forum and let me know there. As a matter of fact, do both those things anyway, whether or not you disagree with me. But mostly if you disagree with me. I love getting hate mail. That's true. I, there's nothing more satisfying than hate mail because you know you really touch someone's heart. I've, I've never gotten hate mail. Well, you I, have not played Xb- on Xbox Live. What's that hard drive for? You know, the extra one by the window. I mean, I thought that was your hate mail e No, no, that, drive. That's, that's the other thing. You know, 
the thing we don't talk about. Ooh. Yeah. Fan okay. Mail? What? Fan mail? No, 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 no. I don't get fan mail. I'm not good <laughs> enough for that. I just always expected I would get I would get uh, hate mail. Oh. I mean, I'm a, I'm a hateable person. Sure. I mean, look at this face. I'm hating you right now. Thank you. You have that a, means you a, have a very good hate face. Like like the face he has when he's hating is I I like that. That's that is a hate hating face. Okay, and so the whole idea is, is there, do you think that there could be a way that we could put in essentially adaptive game theory? And we've, we've spent a lot of time in economics and as well as in psychology using the tenets of game theory to uh, predict human behavior. So we have all of this predictive, predictive methods for human behavior. And the way I originally thought of this is uh, for NPCs in video games. Uh, could we, instead of you know just programming in a certain uh, a certain group of moves and then have them randomized, actually use a, you know game theory sort of equilibrium equilibrium style with a little bit of variance in order to help uh, the NPCs choose what their next option would be, and if that could perhaps uh, uh, create NPCs that act more like uh, you know actual players, like Whopper. That'd be a good example of a, of a machine learning to use game theory, uh, learning that the only way to win is not to play a game of thermonuclear war. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, because you, you identify all the possible outcomes. and Because in the same span of time, Matthew Broderick learned the same thing. Yeah. That, that is true. How do you get And a... then he married Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, not in that. Not in war games. Oh, maybe oh. In, maybe in the sequel. Oh, yeah, yeah it was. There it was, was a sequel. I it was it was uh, War Games Two in the City. <laughs> I think it's like the Omega Code or something like, something like that. There, there is a sequel. Oh, okay. Straight to straight to video, like twenty five years later. <laughs> I mean, if you send if you send a machine out on a date and the girl says, "Oh, we're going Dutch," how do you get him to not play pay? Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, that was, uh, Chris, that was bad. I don't get it. I don't <laughs> how, how do you get, get it. How do you get him to not pay? Uh, except I believe that was supposed to be a Dutch accent. Yeah, it was like a Dutch-Japanese. Yeah, but I wouldn't <laughs> get it even How do you then? get him to not when, pay? When you go Dutch, you uh, split the bill. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. It's also when you've got two jump ropes. <laughs> uh, and I also, uh, well, how would you get the machine not to wear clogs? Wear clocks. You just you just take the machine out of the windmill. Oh, clo- clogs. Are you talking about those wooden shoes that catch up, Nathan? <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, but I did read. I read a, an article in the Wall Street Journal about leather shorts and how leather shorts are like are just showing up all of a sudden, and it's it's there. It, it's women's fashion. They're just it's a slight. It's a slight <laughs> modification of the like 1940s fashion for Bavarian boys. <laughs> just saying, are all of these women's leather shorts come with braces? Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, American words. Uh, suspenders. <laughs> no, 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 no. But uh, they have they have belts. Um, really big like, ones that got, go yeah, like no, up right, to right. the uh, chesticles, exactly. the breasticles shorts, area. The, the leather shorts rise up to like mid stomach, <laughs> and then they've got that stupid pointless uh, belt kind of wrapped around. But then the shorts are pleated at the bottom, just like Bavarian boys. And what are, what it, is of, of the 1940s? Of the 1940s. That's a bad oh, precedent Jesus. right there. 
yeah, know, that like, that is. Like are just, we talking picture, late nineteen late nineteen forties? Picture the sound of music. <laughs> That'd be better. That'd picture be better. all of the sons of the of the colonel or whatever in the sound of music when he'd blow his whistle and they came down the stairs and like snapped to it. Lederhosen. Why I could not think of that. Yeah, leather pants. Leather pants. Lederhosen leather are, pants. are not. Uh, they're not leather pants. It means leather pants. <laughs> uh, they're <laughs> knee breeches. I'm pretty sure it means leather pants. Oh, made of leather. Okay, never mind. I'm wrong. It's that. It's that's like Bavarian or, or German or whatever for leather pants. <laughs> it mentioned that word in the oh, Wall okay. Street Journal article. That's the only reason I knew. <laughs> uh, sorry, why did I get on that? You, you talked what? about clogs. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I, I think we've complete, completely lost the plot there. So I think this is probably a, probably a pretty good uh, time to wrap this up. So uh, in just, to, just now, to finish... Now, could a machine have wandered this far from the original topic? Well, uh, if it thought like a human, according to Searle, or if uh, it was a thinking machine. I, I personally believe that it could. I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in the possibility of artificial intelligence. I'm a strong believer that the human mind is no more than... A machine. And a machine. And I mean, an algorithm. But, you know, whatever. Well, a group of algorithms. Well, right, I, I right, hope right, the hell right. it's not one algorithm. Well, no, I mean, a group of algorithms can be analyzed as a single algorithm. Yeah, that's... Is, okay. So, whatever. Okay. And so, so my, my question to everybody here in, as a way of, of, of ending this episode off, uh, how long from now until, uh, one, we have a machine that can pass the Turing test, and two, we have a machine uh, that people will actually agree is a thinking machine. Nathan, um, I think that that you know, similar to uh, BSG, people are still even if even if the machine is clearly thinking and is redesigning itself and is intelligent and you can reason with the thing and talk with it and you can laugh and be friends, people are still going to be have deep down in their mind this this hateful. Um, you know, whatever, and they're not, they're not going to think of it as equals. Okay, as so thinking. then Turing test. Oh, um, I think we're, I, I think that we might stumble across it soon enough just be, because of the way Years. we... Years, quantitative. Um, 17. 17, okay, Chris. 42. Okay, uh, so that's for Turing test. What about for the other? Uh, an actual thinking machine, because I, while I don't agree with Searle's argument that all thinking machines have to be modeled on the human thought process, I do think that he does have a point about a machine that can pass the Turing test without actually being thinking. All right. To be honest, humans aren't as smart as we give them credit for, but they're pretty darn smart. And to be honest, um, we probably wouldn't know a thinking machine if it was looking us in the face. Okay. Rob? I think that uh, we'll actually hit the the second one first. I think that we'll we'll have uh, the public perception of a thinking machine before we get the before we get that machine, and I think that that machine itself uh, is going to be a lot like you know like personal jetpacks in the flying car. Like it always seems like the technology is just out of our grasp and just eluding us, and it's you know it's always fifteen years or fifty years away. Uh, but no matter how far along we get, it's still fifty years away. Okay, I'm going for uh, 8 and 35. And uh, do you find out, do you tell us now, or do listeners have to go to the next episode to find out who is right? Uh, just go to Wolfram Alpha. Yeah, just and, Alpha. Can we place bets at all? I mean, you know we're in Vegas, so. Um, do they know we're in Vegas? 
Yeah, I, I think that it's been quite the Las clear. Las Vegas Valley secret location in the Las Vegas Valley. Yeah, that was, was our that was our location, location for a really long Can time. Can you place bets with the bookie about like Turing tests or do they? I doubt that that's one that they accept. <laughs> Not at the Vegas casinos, but um, there has to be someplace online somewhere that in the world. That you know, you I can... wrap this all up in a nice tight little fucking bow. And if you don't pay me, I'm gonna hack I'm, your kneecap. <laughs> I'm sure there's a there's a bookie somewhere in town that will take your money on that bet. Well, yeah, and then abscond. Well, also, the fact that you're very unlikely to remember if you're right. Well, it's a, it depends on which one of us is right. Like if it's, you only have to go back eight years later? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, for Nathan Rowe, Rob Schultz, Christopher Bates, I am Samuel Hansen, wishing you a matherific week. And that right there is the end of another episode of Combinations and Permutations. As always, the music has been provided by SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike License, so please feel free to take our voices and make them into something that you would actually prefer to this. If you want to give me any feedback about this show, let me know how much you absolutely adored it and thought it was the best show ever, or that you thought it's the worst work we have ever put in. Let me know at Samuel at AcmeScience.com. That is Samuel at AcmeScience.com, the same email that my family uses to not get a hold of me. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope to see you over at the forums.